I love the word intentional. Curious on your definition of what that means to you, that word. Yeah, for me, intentionality is like thinking like, what are the directions that you want to go in life? Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for another episode. Very excited for today's guest. Quick announcement before we jump in. We have the Intentional Growth Boot Camp coming up on May 11th and 12th at Rollins College in Orlando, Florida. It's based on the five Intentional Growth principles on how to view and run your company like a financial asset. We're going to help you figure out how to clarify that target equity valuation you want at a point in time and the income you want on the way there. We're going to help you figure out how to evolve your leadership role on the way to that target equity valuation. And then... Understand all the different ways you can monetize your asset through an ESOP, private equity, internal sale, third party, and then how you can financially build the roadmap before between where you are today and then where you want to go. And then you have a lot more clarity on how you're going to invest your time, money, and energy into the right strategies that grow value to get you to that valuation. So you have the choices to make it all worth it. Okay. Now that we got that out of the way, make sure just to go uh, check it out at Arcona.io. We're over half full actually. So sorry to keep going, but we're over half full. We cap out at 25 people. I think we've got 15 people's uh, RSVP'd so far. So if you're thinking Thinking about it, make sure to get your spot. Check it out on the website, and we got the agenda. You feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions, and feel free to uh, bring your partner, bring your executive, anybody that you want to get alignment with. is a wonderful two-day uh, space to do that, to walk out, knowing exactly what you got to work on. So that brings us to today's episode, and I'm very excited because we're going to be talking about how to enjoy the journey of living in the intersection of having fun, creating wealth, and making an impact with my guest, Matt Paulson, who is the founder and CEO of MarketBeat. Matt, it started MarketBeat as an online website and blog newsletter, and now it's an app, and they deliver stock market tools, personal financing, uh, personal finance, I should say, investing tips and education, research tools to better empower individual investors to make better trading decisions in re- with real-time financial data. And Matt has grown MarketBeat from a small personal finance blog in the early 2000s into a company with, uh, with 14 employees doing over $25 million in revenue with over 3.5 million subscribers. As MarketBeat has become more successful, Matt has become passionate about helping other entrepreneurs in his local area of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He started the 1 Million Cups in 2014, and in 2020, he became the namesake of Dakota State University's Paulson Center, which aims to accelerate student-faculty-led startup businesses. And Matt has also become an active uh, investor through his VC firm, Homegrown Capital, which invests in technology startups in the Northern Plains, and then Crescent Capital Holdings, which has invested and currently has over $100 million in active investments with over 2,000 units planned to be completed. And Matt is also the author of multiple books and an active philanthropist. So yes, that is quite the bio. And I met Matt through a online market or online entrepreneurs community called Rhodium Weekend. Founder Chris Yates does an amazing job curating wonderful, giving, authentic human beings. So shout out to you, Chris. I met Matt there in this community. And that's why I'm so excited to have him on the show. Because the reason I enjoyed the conversation so much with Matt is 
even the crazy amount of success that Matt has had at such a young age, personally, financially, I mean, so many different things that he has been doing and he's, he's successful at, that he's f- still got himself grounded in humility and just truly understanding what matters in life and he's constantly optimizing for that. So in my mind, Matt has figured out how to live the intentional growth life by living in the intersection of having fun creating wealth and making an impact and you don't get any sense of anxiety from Matt that he should be further along the things that he wants to accomplish or he's you know wishing and hoping and constantly moving the goalposts like so many of us you're gonna get the main takeaway out of this conversation that he's enjoying himself and he's truly constantly tweaking how to live the best life and have fun create wealth and make an impact and I just love the sense of gratitude and peace that he just demonstrates in this podcast. And I think that that is the big takeaway is that it is possible to do everything while you own your company as long as you're focused on the right things and then still have choices so you can pivot down the road whenever something comes up. So without further ado, here's my amazing conversation with Matt Paulson. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the the decisions clear today to say if I do these things what's the impact on cash flow today my ability to fund my growth take the distributions pay for taxes all while staying in line progressing towards the valuation that I want so go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy Matt how are you sir good how are you Ryan I am doing great and I was just telling you that I'm very excited to just chat with you because uh, I met you, I can't remember which rodium it was. Do you remember what uh, hotel it was at? Oh crap, um, no. 
actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Brody always moves uh, around, so if you know which hotel it's at, I yeah. can probably figure out the year. Oh my gosh, I don't. Um, but I was just saying, like, I have just really enjoyed watching you slash reading the stuff that you've been putting out over the years. And you posted uh, uh, a post in Rhodium Weekend about you know, about being an entrepreneur. And honestly, like I, w- I wanted to start there, Matt, because you wrote this really awesome blog page about kind of your journey. But I just wanted to hear from your thoughts. Like, what does it mean to you to be an entrepreneur? And like, what's it all for, man? <laughs> just jump right in, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I've been doing this stuff a long time. I've been making money on the internet since the early 90s. So I've kind of seen all the trends come and go and you know, make see people make lots of money, lose lots of money. It's been around the, around the track several times, and I've seen some people do it really well. I've seen other people in business really kind of screw things up and do you know make a bunch of money, but then they screw up their kids or screw up their marriage. And um, you know, I've really tried to be intentional about a lot of those things in terms of like you know I'm going to be at home at five o'clock today, and I'm going to be playing with my kids and giving a bath and putting them to bed. Um, and skipping the the conference thing that I could have gotten to tonight, just because you know you really got to think you know priorities and like you know ten years from now, what am I going to be glad that I did tonight? And uh, there's a lot of stuff you could go to, but you know uh, mm-hmm. nobody I think regrets spending a lot of time with their kids when they're little. So uh, I try to How- try to keep some of these things in, in perspective in ways that maybe some people forget. How did you figure that out? I I don't know. Uh, well, so when my kid was born, uh, 2012, um, I had a day job uh, doing web design. I was a full-time uh, student at a, at a seminary, believe it or not, and I had my business on the side. And then all of a sudden, I have a kid that's born, and oh, by the way, the kid weighs three pounds, is 10 weeks early, and is going to be in the NICU for three months. So good luck making that work. And I thought, well, F, I need to figure out, like, what's going to get dropped because not all the stuff's going to get done. And that's kind of when I quit my day job to go pursue my business full time and finish seminary and, uh, you know, be a dad to my kid. And, um, you know, kind of ever since then, I've just been very conscientious of time and how it's gets spent and, um, you know, not wasting it on stuff that doesn't matter. Was it true? I mean, that's a, my, my daughter's been the Nikki for a little while too. So like, I mean, that's definitely something that could rock your world to kind of put things in perspective. Was it, do you think you would, there's like, like a huge percentage of it that was related to that situation. Was there anything in your upbringing? Cause and the reason that the, for the question, Matt is, yeah. you know, for hundreds of people who have been on this show, I mean, sometimes it takes people selling the company and not having an identity or rock mm-hmm. bottom or whatever it is like to really go, okay, now I get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, my dad is a police officer for 30 years and uh, he worked strange hours. So I would come home from school and he's sleeping or like I'd go to bed and he's like going to work now. See you later. And, uh, so he just wasn't around, you know, he was obviously, you know, doing a great job providing for our family, but, you know, he wasn't there when I, when I was there as, as much as, you know, as I would like. So I thought, you know, and I have kids, I'm going to try to keep a normal schedule so that when they come home from school, hour or two later, dad's home, dad's home until bedtime and try to do that as, you know, I can't do it hundred percent of the time because, you know, life's busy and stuff comes up, but, you know, I try to make the default that I'm there for the kids. I, I, I just mad respect, man. Mm-hmm. And I, I as so let's let's give the audience a little bit of a flavor of what you've built over the, the last decade or plus because yeah. it's pretty impressive in some of the there's some of the questions that you can kind of give the flyby and then mm-hmm. I've got some questions as far as like kind of what's kept you grounded along this path. Yeah, so the business that I run today is called MarketBeat. It's a financial media business where very advertising driven. So we have an email list of about three point four million people. 
that get our newsletter every day. We send a couple emails a day. So, you know, sending seven to 10 million emails a day is not uncommon. Um, and we've kind of built that over the last 10 years. Um, we have a big kind of set of advertisers that come back to us month after month. So we don't have to do a whole lot of ad sales. We do have a subscription product that um, needs some work. Um, just hasn't kept up with it because um, like our subscription revenue has kind of gone up slowly to the right, but our advertising revenue has skyrocketed. So that's kind of become mm-hmm. the focus for us. Um, so I think we're going to continue to streamline our subscription stuff because it's now maybe 10% of revenue when it used to be 30 or 40%. Oh, wow. Because, um, yeah, it just hasn't grown at the same rate, which is fine. But yeah, I've been doing this thing for, I think, the first kind of investing content I produced on the internet was maybe 2009. So um, great. Where did you get, where did you get started, man? Like, like where, where was the personal finance passion? Cause like, and there's so much, like, as I was trying to think about the ways we could go with this conversation, man, I'm going to try and rein myself in for the listener's sake, but like you built a business, like a truly sustainable business over the years, but also your passion for personal finance. I'm curious Mm -hmm. how those two, you know, correlated. Yeah. I mean, it really started. So this, you know, that, that, that story kind of began when I was a college student and didn't have any money and needed to figure out how to find $2,000 to pay my tuition bill that I didn't have. And like, cause I worked at a gas station during the summer and I did okay. Like made seven bucks an hour doing that. It was fun. Uh, not really easy job, but then I moved to college and couldn't do that job there. So then I ended up working at McDonald's also making seven bucks an hour. That job wasn't very fun. I was like, I gotta come up with a new plan. Cause I was racking up student loan debt, didn't have any money, could barely pay tuition. And I was just like, this is not working. I gotta do something else. And you know, I thought about, you know, I could just go get more private student loans and that seems to be what people did. And I know there's got to be a better path than that. So um, I, the way it started, like, um, you know, I, I kind of had an interest in personal finance. was kind of doing the Dave Ramsey stuff, the Clark Howard okay. stuff. And that got me interested and that provided me an opportunity to do some like freelance writing for personal finance on, on different websites. And, you know, that led to a personal finance blog that led to like five personal finance blogs one of which happened to be an investing blog that uh, blew up and now makes $25 million a year. So <laughs> uh, you're, you're very gracious to yourself, my yes. friend. And I uh, will unpack that. And I, because like, I find it super interesting. It, it, some of the, the inflection points that you had along the way. And one thing that I find super fascinating, Matt, mm-hmm. is the, the industry space that, you know, the industry of, you know, e-commerce blogs, you know, mm-hmm. the, the whole space, the online space. When, I mean, when I met you, I was just getting kind of exposed to it because I came from yeah. the traditional business space. What, what, I, what I find very fascinating is that you've built an omni-channel like business off of this where there's so many people that took the quick hit. I mean, not, there's no fault of their mm-hmm. own, but like the businesses, whether it's a blog or e-commerce, FBA site or something like that, it was like, quick money and then sell it where there there's someone else was really sitting there waiting to acquire it. Yeah. I mean, did you have times like as you were making these decisions of what to do with the business where there was an opportunity to just cash out like that, but you decided to stay the track? Yeah. I actually tried to sell the business in 2016. Um, my daughter was born and uh, she had her own medical issues and uh, she was not going well for her family. And I thought, well, maybe I should sell this and take some time off and do something else. And, um, I did get a couple offers, but like, you know, two and a half, three times the revenue or earnings. Actually, I think, I think the best offer was 2.6 times EBITDA. It was one of our, I won't say which one, but one of the brokers had it listed. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the offer frankly wasn't exciting. And, you know, the buyers thought the risk, but, you know, at the time the site had gotten a ton of traffic from Google News, which um, it doesn't anymore. And that's fine. But they saw that as a risk and nobody wanted to pay four or five times EBITDA for it at the time. 
Um, so business ever sold and I just kept running it and, um, it really, you know, once kind of family stuff settled down and kind of got normalized again, um, found some new growth opportunities in the business where we took off and especially during COVID, you know, we were doing 7 million a year pre COVID in 2019. Now it's you know, 25 plus. So. <laughs> That's how fast that growth happened. <laughs> Holy crap, man. Um, wow. That's it. And what was some of the just on that particular part? Was there in, any interesting cracks from operations that you saw with that kind of growth? Yeah, uh, we definitely had to scale up. So we went from five to fourteen people, which you know for the revenue we do is you know every lean ship, and that's awesome. <laughs> yes. but, uh, yeah, stuff definitely broke along the way. Like a lot of stuff broke. Uh, first thing to broke was like just even server capacity. Like we had it uh, on two dedicated servers and some random hosting company and uh, support wasn't very good. So we switched everything over to liquid web and they're awesome. And now I think our, our website sits across like five different servers. So a couple of them can go down and it's not that big of a deal. Very redundant now we hired a really, really technical backend guy to kind of set that all up for us. And like yesterday or over the weekend, like one of our database servers just like died, but nobody, nobody, no, nobody noticed because uh, there was another server sitting there and, the liquid web swapped it out for a new one and everything was fine and no issues. Mm. So. That's awesome, man. It, so when I think about your business model and like what you have evolved market beats into over the years, like, I mean, it was banner ad revenue as you were kind of alluding to. And then uh, what was the name of the, the American banking and marketing news? Yeah. Can you explain that story, man? I found that fascinating because maybe you could explain the story and then what you learned mm-hmm. out of that experience and how that directed and changed how you were treating the business now. Yeah, so the, the hack that I kind of figured out in 2009, 2010, I had American banking and market news going. Uh, first, I figured out you could like write about the big banks when everybody thought they were going to go bankrupt. Like the question was, like, is Citibank going to be here a year from now? Is Bank of America going to be here a year from now? So first, we would just write about those big banks every day and get a ton of traffic from Google Finance. Uh, that was awesome because like if you get into Google News back at the time, you get into Google Finance too. So. Um, like the trick was to like put the stock ticker in the title of the article in the first sentence and then somewhere else and then it would get picked up. Uh, so we would write about those and that went awesome. And then, then I figured out like you could take some earnings like data that's out there kind of in the wild of just um, about, about companies. So like whenever there's a dividend announcement or an earnings announcement, uh, we could take that information and turn it into kind of like an automated news release and then publish mm. that on the site. So we went from, you're doing five, 10, 20 articles a day to like a hundred uh, overnight because it was all automated and just kind of copy and paste stuff in and the software did it. And then you could post to WordPress with uh, this thing called XML RPC and just kind of automate the whole thing. And that worked awesome until we got the site kicked out of Google Finance for being too aggressive with it. But then I got another site to do the same thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've got more legit over the years, but uh, definitely some growth hacks a long way. That's super interesting. And, and it's... Uh... It was kind of tied to like when you had found out that that website based on where the traffic was coming from, it was kind of what I was reading when I was uh, kind of looking through it is the the risk of the cash and where the where the revenue is coming from. Yeah. Because before it was just – so you are actually looking at that as a diversification away from just organic, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe just in general, Matt, kind of think about or maybe kind of give us your thoughts on how you look at risk and where, where yeah. traffic and revenue is coming from and how you've uh, taken yeah. that thought and put it into your business. Yeah. So initially, like the the business was get website from Google and then get people to click on Google ads. And, you know, that was fine, Uh, but obviously very dependent on stuff that I can't control. 
So over the years, I've really tried to build audiences on platforms that um, you know aren't owned by any one company. So obviously, email is the main one, but also SMS, um, even physical mailing lists, um, push notifications, stuff that's kind of more general um, platforms mm-hmm. and not like Snapchat or you know TikTok or anything where it's some big company is controlling an algorithm that I'm a slave to. Like I don't want to play that game. Lots of people play that game. Some people make lots of money do it, but as soon as like your interests are no longer aligned, uh, there goes there goes the money, right? So I've really did you tried see to an experience, that. or did you see something happen that that was a heightened alert for you? Oh yeah, the first kind of Google Panda update kicked our butts. Like all the personal finance sites, half the traffic disappeared overnight. And like well, that sucks, but you know I really wanted to take the kind of the traffic hacks that were working at the time and kind of convert it into something more um, permanent. And that's kind of how the newsletter launched initially was we had some financial data because we were doing the automated content. Um, so we thought, we'll just take some of that automated content and mix it with some news content and send out an email every day that um, we've got people on the, I think the email was started like January of 2010. We've got people like that signed up that month that still subscribe and still open email today, which is wow. 13 years into the business. Like where, where else do you figure out, you know, have, have signups that are still creating value for you 13 years later. Dude, that is the that, that is mm-hmm. quite the testament, right? Yeah. I mean, holy buckets. The, so let's talk about where, where you're at in Sioux Falls mm-hmm. and your passion for entrepreneurship. Because, you know, you I'm in Minneapolis and you're in Sioux Falls. We're not in the Bay Area. Correct. Right? <laughs> and so there's a lot of implications that have to do with that. But like, what is, you know, as you've been growing this business, where did you find your community, your resources, how to bounce ideas off mm-hmm. off of you, like your as you were having your journey, and then how are you reciprocating, and how are you you know turning that into yeah. your community now? So, for the first several years, I couldn't find any of it locally; it just didn't exist. Um, so I kind of got into some different online communities. Um, like the thing that like really opened my eyes to what was possible was the Internet Business Mastery podcast back in the day you know, Sterling and Jay or whatever their real names are, like those guys like, you know, caused me to see the light and like, yes, I should have customers and I should have an email list and I should sell them something. It shouldn't just be banner ads and, you know, whatever else. So those guys, uh, you know, they don't know me, but uh, a lot of credit to those guys. And kind of discovered like Pat Flynn and Tropical MBA and Starts for the Rest of Us and kind of all the podcasts that a lot of people are familiar with and just, you know, listen to every episode. Like I was part of, uh, uh, tropical MBA community, Dynamite Circle for a while, um, then kind of got into the Rhodium group, did that. I was in like Ryan Moran's group for a while, um, different communities of online entrepreneurs. I'm like, you know, those are my people. So uh, that's kind of who I, I learned from. And then kind what of- was it like telling what was it like telling people that you lived next to what you did? Like, like, yeah. like, cause I can only imagine like the disconnect of like the physical businesses <laughs> yeah. and the entrepreneurs that you would run into. Yeah. No, nobody got it for a long period of time. A lot of people still don't get it. They just know that <laughs> Mark makes lots of money and does some cool stuff in Sioux Falls, which is fine. <laughs> They're not our uh, customers. So I don't really care if they understand it or not, but, uh, yeah, I mean, locally kind of about 10 years ago, I started getting involved on different kind of events and I have a buddy named John Meyer who was kind of leading the effort back then and got connected to him and he launched this event called one million cups. That was a cool thing for a while. Most of them are gone now, but it's like a weekly entrepreneurship event. Uh, we did some annual events, uh, four or five years ago, I started this thing called started to falls, which is kind of an ecosystem organization. Cause, uh, the people that kind of were the ecosystem organization, people that like 
the I don't know the powers that be in the community had set up just wasn't wasn't cutting it wasn't really creating the impact. And uh, I got under. What were some of the things missing? Did you see? Uh, there was just no community element to it. So like they had a. Um, uh, an accelerator facility. There's a little bit of venture capital activity, but there's like no funnel leading into it. Like as, as I got on their board um, and immediately like, you know, we had like flexible office space that we were trying to fill and like couldn't find people to fill it. And I was like, where's the funnel? Where's the community? Who are we marketing this to? And like, just it wasn't there. So I sought out to create it. So we made like a local Facebook group, did more local events, uh, built an email list, online community kind of stuff, uh, with in-person touch points, and um, just some really basic stuff that you know any any kind of online community builder would get right away. Um, so, kind of built all that, and uh, eventually persuaded uh, some of the local startup ecosystem business community leaders. Like, yeah, it's probably the right idea. It's working really well. Uh, we should do that. So then, eventually, we we merged our organization with theirs, and then we took my name, which started to follow us because it's such an obvious name. And, um, our, the building we had was like 40,000 square foot. It's on the edge of town, uh, was not a good place. So uh, we got our chamber and economic development people to like let us um, repurpose that building. Uh, and we moved into a cool downtown building that the city gave us for a dollar a year. And I gave them a million bucks to remodel it. Now we have a really cool downtown co-working event space. And inside there, there's this uh, big meeting room and it's got a, a big neon sign, like Mark, it's got a neon sign. But there's one that says oh, like Market Beat Theater because it's called the Market Beat Theater. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. It's been, been a lot of fun to just kind of push, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystem stuff in my community along for the last 10 years. And uh, definitely hasn't been without headaches because, you know, try to getting non-entrepreneurs to think entrepreneurially is, can be difficult. And, uh, what are some of the challenges you find with that? Um, you know, I think one thing that's maybe unique to Sioux Falls, or maybe it's not, but Sometimes we're as a city, we're more concerned that something is hap- like is happening, and we're less concerned about whether or not it's good. So, like you know, the sometimes people just want to check boxes, like oh yeah, we've got a workforce development program. Oh yeah, we've got a startup ecosystem program. We've mm. got a um, you know a young people in business program. And sometimes people are more concerned about like what it costs, and um, you know, is it there versus like, are we, you know, what are the kind of the outcomes and what are the impacts? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a challenge. Totally makes sense. Um, when you, when you think about like the resources that you're bringing to these entrepreneurs, cause like, I think about, you know, it is different, man. Like being up in Minnesota, it's like, you know, and especially like you, you and I have talked about Rob Walling or, you know, any of the other online entrepreneurs, <laughs> you're, the nature of the business is you're not stumbling into each other. Yes, right. Yep. So like, so when I think about, with the resources that you're bringing to these entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. like what are some of the things that you're like, when you look back that, w- that you're trying to help them get access to mm-hmm. or get like certain mindsets, is there certain things that you're trying to, f- to drive that outcome that actually that you were yeah. talking about? You know, the, the things that really seem to work um, are kind of the community stuff, honestly, like does, didn't work, doesn't work. Like you can have all of these events, uh, people aren't going to start businesses. The stuff that does work is really the more the accelerator program type stuff and then venture capital. So we've kind of hooked up with this program called Co-Starters. That works really well um, to kind of get people through their, you know, who's my customer, what's my product, what's my marketing strategy, kind of all the business model canvas type stuff like that's been a good program. Um, and then just having money to uh, give to startups to grow. Like we've had a couple of really good success stories out of Sioux Falls. Uh, because of that, um, one is called, is an enterprise software company called Prismatic. 
yours truly led the seed round for that that deal and now they've gone on to raise like a nine million dollar series a that got announced a couple weeks ago so that's like, awesome there, there's only like four um companies in the state like right now that are and venture track that have gotten past like series a funding and you know i'm pretty sure i've got capital on i got capital on two of them definitely um it's just because i mean is it you is there just like an awareness issue too probably because of like awareness i should say from the entrepreneur's perspective of like hey this is even an opportunity like i can take my idea I think there's do something with it. one thing that I've noticed is there's like a disconnect between our technology community and our startup community. Like the people that like are super into tech aren't super into startups and the people in startups aren't super into tech. And part of it might be because like there's a lot of big employers around here that I'll be happy to pay a hundred to 150 K a year for tech guy and cost of living is low. So if you're making 150 K in Sioux Falls, like your life's pretty good. So maybe mm. there's just not that push to, or that drive to like go, go level up and be an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. so we are trying to fix that but it's uh it's hard so matt when i think about like the and and we can keep talking about some of the other things you got your fingers into too but like i think about like so many of the successful entrepreneurs that i stumble across it's like the business is their identity and then as they get outside of that they kind of don't really know how to find hobbies or where to get involved and like how to separate themselves from their business and it's kind of all just swirled together how have you handled that concept you know i've had a few friends locally that have sold their businesses and really struggled with identity stuff afterwards and you know that's kind of led me to think well maybe i shouldn't sell my business because for these three guys it's not going super hot and i like doing my business so maybe i should never sell the business because the business is the platform that lets me do all the other things and if i sell it like is that platform still there so What's your definition of platform in this context? Because I like what you're, where you're going with this. Well, so for Mark be for me, like, one, I run a successful business in town. So, like, you kind of have the business leader identity. You know, also makes a bunch of money, which is great because that lets me fund different things. <laughs> Check. And, yeah. Um, you know, I can leverage kind of our – even leverage our team. Like, the Startups Who Follows website was built by Mark B team members. Um, so you can use – your team members can, can borrow some of their time to do side projects and – um, you know, if I didn't have the team, I couldn't do as much of that stuff um, for the community. So, it's a, it's a, appreciate you giving that clarity because I think that's um, that's one of the things that I did not anticipate after we had sold to. Like, I mean, I was talking to someone recently, and I was like, "Do you have a reason to go talk to people? Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't have your company, will you even have the reason to participate in that conversation?" He's mm-hmm. like, "You're right, I, I won't. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Like, what's the purpose?" Yeah. So, how have you started to like? Or what was the process for you to start to entertain these other other passions and hobbies? Yeah. So MarketBeat has never been like this most time-consuming business in the world. Like if I buckle down, I could probably do my job in 30 hours a week. So there, there's always been the time there to do it. So that's kind of led me to fill my time with other stuff because, you know, I don't want to get bored and I don't want to play video games all the time. And, you know, kids are at school now, so they don't really need me during the day. Um, so I've always wanted to do lots of different things at once and you know for a while i kind of recognized that doing other things was a distraction and cost me money like i had a buddy that had like a golf website and i was helping him out and own part of the company and like this thing makes like 200 grand a year like why why am i putting time into this so for a while it, it was definitely cut 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 to focus on market but uh you know now better opportunities have shown up like uh, the launched venture capital fund um, about a year ago um, got a cool partner in it who really knows what he's doing um 
but it, you know, it doesn't take a ton of time. It takes some time, but not a ton of time. So definitely better, you know, business is mature, definitely, but it's created time to do some other fun opportunities where, you know, yeah, I can make some money, but also like really learn a new industry, um, like real estate and VC. And that's been a lot of fun just to, as an educational experience and also hoping to make some money too. Have you ever found yourself spread too thin while you, while you've been doing this? Yeah, it, it comes and goes in seasons. Um, uh, really the times that I get spread too thin or when I say yes to too many of other people's things. So, you know, if you're, you're anybody that's a successful in a, a smaller community, like your DMS and your email gets lit up by people looking for advice and coffee meetings and lunch and, even on Twitter, just people that, you know, want something, um, you get a lot of that and it's fine. And I, I totally understand it. People want to learn from people who are successful. Um, you really have to manage that, understand, like you can't be everything to everybody. And if you try, you're going to make yourself miserable and not focus on your stuff. So there's definitely a place for it, but, um, I've definitely kind of scaled back on how many DMS I respond to and how many people I get back to and how many people I'm willing to meet with on a monthly basis, just to, you know, I want to kind of have a sustainable pace of life and don't want to get too, you know, get burned out doing too many things. Is there any suggestions that you have to, for yours truly who sucks at that filter? Yeah. <laughs> like it gives, it's, um, that is, pro- that is easily one of my biggest weaknesses, Matt. And I, I like, how do you judge and what is the process? Do you listen to your gut? Do you just mm-hmm. go till you're breaking or is like, what's the, what's the process there? Yeah, it's good. It's good to have some filters. Um, and kind of the most helpful thing for me in the last couple of years, you know, I've got an employee named Will who works for me. It's, you know, older than me and wiser. And he just said, you know, if you're not going to meet with them anyway, are you really doing yourself a favor by spending an hour writing them an email saying, no, you're not going to meet with them. Or you just not respond to the email. So I, I think if you're getting, you know, 20 ish DMS or tweets or emails or whatever a day, like you just got to give yourself permission to like not respond to people. And, you know, and the other thing that I think of is, you know, I think of like, who are the top five business community people when our leader, excuse me, the top five business leaders in my community and like, if I emailed them, would I expect a response in 24 hours? Like, no, probably not. Or would I expect a response at all? Mm. Maybe not. So like, if I wouldn't expect that from them, I shouldn't have to do that either for others. Um, mm. So that's, that's been helpful for me. Um, you know, there, there's definitely filters. Like if I meet somebody in person, much more likely to like say yes to meet with them. Um, if it's somebody that I, I don't know and don't know people that know them, or even, even if they're like in town, like, you know, Try, I, I tend not to take those meetings as much because often I don't want to say they're sometimes they end up being weirdos, but sometimes they end up being weirdos. And who ask for something more when they're in person with you? <laughs> yeah, and it's not even about the ask. It just sometimes like strange people get attracted to successful people, and just kind of want to keep my distance from some of that. So it is, you know, it gets hard to make new friends because um, because you don't know what motives people have when they show up. So. You kind of got to meet people in certain contexts where you know it's they probably don't want anything from you, and yeah, it's it's something to manage. Uh, I don't uh, monitor my own schedule anymore, so like if I want to meet with somebody, I will I will tell them, "Hey, Ryan, uh, Maureen's going to follow up with you, and we'll, she'll find us a time to meet." And if Maureen's in charge of my schedule, she won't overbook me in a way that I'll overbook me. She knows that the <laughs> the limit is like twelve meetings a week. Um, so like after 12, she just pushes it back to the next week. And it's, it's really good at protecting my time in a way that I'm not. So That's awesome, man. I, I uh, Those gatekeepers are, they protect ourselves. I totally agree mm-hmm. with that. And 
I'm curious, Matt, especially with your personal finance, um, your personal finance passion and what you do Mm -hmm. and coming from a very humble background, Mm -hmm. did you struggle with imposter syndrome? And I know that's way overused, but I'm just going to use, you know, Mm -hmm. use it for the definition of it is. And then as you've achieved, and I don't know if you are, but I can imagine with some of the numbers, you're financially free Mm -hmm. and how you processed that. Yeah. I remember when I first got started before I was kind of full-time, like definitely dealt with it. Like I would not call myself an entrepreneur uh, for a long time. I was like, a, I thought of myself as a web developer that had a side gig that worked out pretty well. And then I went full time and really had to you know, think about how I wanted to think of myself. And, you know, now, um, you know, I know what my tax return says every year and I know it's a number that almost nobody else says. So it's like, it's hard to, hard to see any or imposter syndrome now just because the number is like, are so obvious that like, like, yeah, got there, been there, done that, got the t-shirt um, in ways that others haven't. So um, definitely it was a thing at starting, but, but now it's not, not, not part of the equation. What is it? What's it for? What, what's it all for then in your mind? You know, what's the purpose? Of- uh, with the, with the money, mm-hmm. with the, the dollars and the wealth mm-hmm. and like, what do you want to do with it? Like, what would be the impact mm-hmm. that if we were to say, hey, we're sitting here and it's 20 years from now. Yeah. And Matt gets to say, hey, we did these things that would bring you a big smile to your face. What, like, yeah. what's it for? Well, I mean, for me, I'm like past like the point of like lifestyle creep. Um, you know, we live in a 3,000 square foot house and next to a school and we're not moving. So like that's um, – I don't have any more room in my garage for cars or anything fun. So like I've got a, got, I've got one Lamborghini and it's a fun car, but like, I'm not going to buy another one. So like we're at peak lifestyle. So any money beyond like where I'm at today is one partially keeping score, but two, it's resources that let me do more kind of fun stuff for the benefit of others. So like I'm part of a small church. I want to help them kind of build a facility that they own someday. I uh, would love to do that. Um, you know, starts falls is a big project. Um, there's like a local kids science museum, um, that we have, uh, like next month, we're going to announce that we're going to redo Like they've got a, it's like three floors and they're like different themes. And one of them is a space floor, but it's like 20 years out of date. So we're giving a bunch of money to like modernize it and, you know, not, awesome. not talk about the commercial crew program as if it's something that's far out. So, uh, that's going to be fun. Um, but I, I like doing projects, um, and you know, they don't have to be like for my benefit. I want to find opportunities in, in the community I live in to do cool stuff. Like I would love for there to be a Sioux Falls Aquarium. Like I've, you can't see it here, but I've got a 500 gallon fish tank in my office. And nice. Yeah. Like saltwater, live coral, everything is like, you know, I think Sioux Falls should have a, a full aquarium and we don't have one yet. And uh, there's a group working on it, but I don't know if they, they've got it, got it, got it, but they need to, to get it done. I, you need probably like 20 million bucks to get that done. And I don't have 20 million bucks to do that right now, but maybe someday I will. So um, <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good use of 20 million bucks. That'd be awesome. So maybe somebody will beat me to it, but I would love for that to exist at some point. Did you, your, your exposure and your passion for personal finance, mm-hmm. has that kept you grounded along this way? And, 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 the, and maybe you just, you're just such a damn nice person, man. I don't know if that, cause the reason I'm just <laughs> trying to peel this apart, cause it's like, 
you and I both know the circles that we run into, man. Like, oh yeah, there's... this stuff can go like off the charts. And I just got done reading the Psychology of Money mm-hmm. book, Matt. Have you read that yet? I have I don't not. Know if you're I, I swear I wouldn't read it because I've read hundreds of finance mm-hmm. books. And I'm like, I don't know what what's another take on this. And it was just the psychology. It was mm-hmm. so much about the the psychology of it. And so I'm trying to understand, like, you know, as people, like, just no matter how much they have, it's never enough. Yeah. Well, I think that, but there are also people who just like let it get to their head and think I'm such a big shot and, you know, too good for everyone else. And, you know, I've kind of set up my life up in such a way where it's kind of hard for me to get ungrounded like that. Cause, uh, you know, we send our kids to public school. Um, we live in a normal neighborhood. We live in a small town. We're part of a church. And um, if I'm talking a whole bunch of shit at people in public where you know, it kind of gets out there like, you know, somebody at my church is going to be like, what the heck are you doing, Matt? And, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's always tempting to be like the big swinging business guy in town making a bunch of money. But I've really tried to avoid no that. Desire. Yeah, I don't know. I just really tried to avoid that because, you know, I think there are some business people in town like who have made a lot of money, but are also like total assholes. Nobody likes them. and Like, I don't want to be that guy. Right. It's uh, uh, so you were in ministry school, right? Yeah. And I finished, I got, I got the degree. Um, did you really? Yeah. So I I was a theology minor, Matt. I don't know if I ever, if you ever knew that. So it's super fascinating Mm -hmm. to hear like, how did that, so first of all, why, why, what was your intent to go? And then like, what was it, what was it like essentially becoming like a, very wealthy individual talking about money when you were going through ministry. I just, I, I love the, I love the combo. Yeah. You know, the main reason that I went was I wanted to learn more about church history and theology in a way that I couldn't really get through church Bible studies. So I never really intended to go into ministry full time. Um, hmm. But I had a buddy named Nate who worked at seminary and like they had this uh, class for kind of lay leaders in the community called discipleship Sioux Falls. And I went to that. It's like, this is fun. I want to do more of that. And I knew like, if I'm ever going to go to grad school, it's probably going to happen before I have kids. And, uh, you know, it was, the opportunity was that, or like the MBA program at another school in town. And it kind of sounded more fun. So I, I did that. And three years later, graduated with a 64 credit hour seminary degree. And, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It's a great experience, um, for the right person. It's a really good, uh, use of time. When you think about your online business and how, how you built, the business mm-hmm. and the topic. And so I'm kind of curious, I, I was, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this question is like, there's the business that you have mechanically, right? Like yep. from the subscriptions to the the advertisement to all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it could be about any topic yeah. technically, you know, and then, but you, you've got personal finance. I'm curious, like, is there a saturation point or certain topics for this kind of business that you have? Mm-hmm. And like, have you ever thought about other topics that are outside of personal finance where you could just rinse and repeat your business model? Well, I mean, there's 60 to 70 million people in the United States that own individual stock. I kind of consider that our, our total addressable market. And I've got 3.4 million of them on an email list. So we're <laughs> maybe 5% of the way there. So I, I'm, you know, I think there's plenty of room to grow. Like I'm aware of like, one or two 10 million person email addresses in the investing space. There's a big company called Agora that's got that many and another one called MarketWise that probably has that many. So, you know, we could have three times the number of email subscribers we do today at some point and make a hundred million a year or more. And I think nobody would be too sad about that. It's, um, 
and how when you're when you're with I, I continue to go back to that person that's been opening up your emails for 13 years mm-hmm. how what is some of your approach towards providing that kind of value and making sure that what you ship every day is going to be value how do you guys keep that quality control yeah so we have a team of about 15 freelance writers that write for mark happy we have two two and a half editors that add the content make sure it's good I think maybe the thing that kind of keeps people coming back, um, especially the people that have been subscribed for a long time, is, you know, it's we publish the newsletter every day. Like, we never miss it, and the format's pretty consistent. So if you kind of just get make the habit of it and you stay in the habit of it, you know, you look for certain things in the newsletter and you always want to see it. It kind of becomes a, I would say, a morning paper. It just becomes part of the routine, and, you know, people people like it and just kind of stick with it. Yeah. Is there any, as you've been growing the businesses, were there any major challenges that made you second guess that like, hey, outside of the family stuff, mm-hmm. like, hey, is this is this worth it, you know, with the, the changes or any, like from the software, not the software, but like the yeah. kind of the mechanics of it? Uh, probably not in the last five years. Um, the industry has definitely changed, but um, some, you know, I know all the advertisers we work with and kind of understand their businesses and. I really kind of feel like if I'm the best in the world at anything, it's probably like generating uh, demand for financial information products. Um, and I, I don't know anything else that I would do nearly this well. So I think I'm the best at it. So I want to stick with it because I, I can't think of any other way to make more money than I'm making today. Um, so just going to keep doing That's that. That's a good problem to have, my and, friend. <laughs> um, so as it relates to your team, like what was it like uh, scaling up the team that fast? I mean, what how, how did you select your team? How did how did you how you create a culture mm-hmm. with a team that uh, that you pretty much um, mm-hmm. fourteen people is an intimate group, but also you you grew it pretty fast. Yeah, I got really lucky. Uh, first employee, friend of a friend of a friend. Second employee was somebody I met at a co-working space. Third employee was just a guy I knew online forever, and then that was kind of up until twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, and started to scale. I'm like, I need some more people, so. Uh, thankfully, I was pretty involved in kind of the small business startup community at that point, and I knew a, a guy uh, named Will who had a business going and it was venture funded, not but not going well. But I knew he was super smart, so I thought, hey, I know you guys are going to shut down, or maybe you need to get acquired. Um, so how about you guys, like you and the other developer that worked for him, and like how about you guys come work for me, and I'll pay you what you're making now. So that worked out really well, and since then, like Will has helped kind of build the team. Just done an excellent job with that. And, uh, we hired a CFO about a year and a half ago, and she's been great. And uh, you know, our kind of strategy is just to be really bad at something until we decide we're going to be the best at it. So, hired a CFO, <laughs> got the books it. together, uh, did a full audit, did another full audit, and like now we're really good at the books. Um, so when we decide to be good at something, then we can get, get good at it. That's awesome, man. It, the, you're now also getting into a bunch of real estate, so. Yeah. Are you leveraging your team right now for the real estate stuff too? And like, what's, what's the, what's your intent with the real estate? So uh, typically when somebody like me wants to invest in real estate, you run into all sorts of syndicators, people that, you know, have a deal and they're looking for money and then they want to do some kind of preferred return and split on top of that. I I always kind of felt like that's a little bit of a sucker's game because, you know, it's all my money and um, (laughs) they're, they're making money off of it. I kind of I ran into a guy. His name is uh, Kevin Tooby. Um, his his uh, claim to fame is he he owns or still owns like 1,300 Verizon stores across the country, 
been. He had a couple of private equity exits, um, so he did really well. I worth, let's say, a couple hundred million bucks. And he decided that, you know, after he got out of doing a rise in stores, at least as um, an operator, he wanted to run his own family office because he thought it would be fun. And he uh, started developing real estate. And uh, our mutual friend said, hey, you two both make a lot of money. You're both really smart. You guys should talk to each other. So we had, had lunch and uh, that led to another lunch. And he's like, hey, I'm doing an apartment project. Do you want to buy 10% of it? And it's like, what are the fees? And he's like, there's no fees here, GP. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> and now here we are like 30 projects later, at least probably $20 million in equity, at least in my part on the deals. Um, and is, uh, How many doors did I see? Uh, I mean, it's going to be a bunch when it's there, done, right? Yeah, once, once everything, like, so we, 2020, 21, like interest rates, you could finance an apartment project at 3.5%, you know, like, we knew that like this is not going to stick around forever, so we figured that out, and we we're like we're going to start as many projects at three and a half percent as we can, and just go hard and fast. <laughs> and um, it's uh, kind of what we did. And uh, now I think when everything's done, we have about two thousand units that we share, and then we have like ten Starbucks buildings um, and just a bunch of different random strip malls, that kind of stuff, um, spread around town, and, and then a few other places as well. And, and when you guys are with your kind of your Sioux Falls, the local filter of everything that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Are you applying that with the real estate too? Cause I mean, like I, I, for some reason, Matt, like I just, every time I see the things that you're doing, mm-hmm. I just, it just screams conscious capitalism. I mean, you have a, you have very intentional mm-hmm. <laughs> with everything you're doing. It's not like things are just going off all over the place just for the mm-hmm. growth. I mean, you're like, so is it locally? I mean, what, what's, what's kind of the spin to it? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there's always kind of the invest in your hometown element. That's that's fun to drive by a building and like, yeah, I own part of that. And uh, you know, there's, there's definitely an, an element of investing in my community, but also like the returns are really good because you, know, you get tax benefits and you're paying off debt and there's you know you're getting income on it. So you know, the returns are better than what I get. In the, you get in the stock market. So like, you know, where else can you? You know, obviously rates have gone up and no new projects make sense right now, but um, you know, two, three years ago when we were starting stuff like, you know, best returns, tax benefits, invest locally. And the other thing about Sioux Falls that maybe some people don't know is like the developer is basically run the town. So if you mm. want to be one of the people that run the town, you probably become a developer. So uh, I wanted to be, be part of that game. <laughs> I love it. So um, I don't know if you want to go here or not, Matt, but uh, I, I've been following a lot. I, I've, I'm a junkie for macroeconomics yeah. and monetary policy and stuff like that. And I just think about what's been going on over the last few weeks with mm-hmm. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature. By the way, I had the, the founder of Signature Bank on my show Sweet. in 2020. <laughs> I know. I, I don't think that aged well. Let's just uh, put it that way. You should call him up and see if he wants to be on the show again. I, no shit, hey, man. I, I, heard, I heard you sold your business to the FDIC for a dollar. How's that going? Yeah, what are you doing right. now? How was that exit? Right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk about your legacy, man. Yeah. Oh, I actually like. Yeah, I actually didn't even know it was the signature. Well, it didn't click. Is mm-hmm. my so I was like, hey, I had this banker on. I should have him back on the show to talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, like I don't think he's probably taking press interviews right now. Yeah, but probably not. You know, with, with your with, <laughs> with your personal finance and just your you're just your because I know you had released some material too about kind of what was going on. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts, man? Like as far mm-hmm. as like what's the, how they're handling the overall like 
fix of this and how that is different from like the investor VC world because you're like really have a foot in both because you're in the VC world but you're in Sioux Falls and you're not in the Bay Area and so like kind of just you're I don't know like I said we don't have to go here too much but I'm just kind of curious on some of your thoughts or where people should be paying attention to well it kind of feels like the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates as fast as they could until something broke and then something broke I think the underlying issue though is you know there's every bank in the country still has losses from long-term treasuries that uh, is not all of a sudden fixed by kind of the short-term things they've done. And as they continue to raise rates, those losses are just going to increase. So like the problem, you know, they stem the the chaos and the panic from happening like short-term, but like the long-term underlying issues are still underlying issues. Like banks across the country have moved kind of their long-term treasuries from like their available for sale bucket to their hold to maturity bucket. So that way they don't have to mark down the losses or they just say, oh, yeah, this is a 10-year treasury note. We're going to hold it until it matures 10 years from now. And like, well, theoretically, that could be true. But, you know, if a whole bunch of people take money out of your bank. Then you got to sell them at a loss and then you're fucked. I know, dude. And I sit here, man. I mean, it's like, what, $682 billion yeah, of unrealized huge. losses. And that's without another quarter or half a percent. Right, which is just going to immediately, you know, sink them even further. And I was looking at the mortgage market, man. I'm like, what the, what? Like, seriously, like, what's the plan here? And uh, I just find it fascinating. Where, like, is this how? Like, how do you see the rates and the stuff, like, impacting the startup space that you're playing in in Sioux Falls or the your ecosystem compared to maybe some other people? Um, You know, for a while, like. Like a year ago, everybody expected deals to be less competitive and pricing to go down in startups. And at least in the seed stage, it, it really didn't. Like in the later stage, prices kind of corrected. But in terms of the seed and Series A, like the correction never really happened. And now it's kind of finally happening where you know, there's always like a delay from like the public markets kind of correct first. And then it's the late stage private. And now it's kind of finally hitting, you know, 12, 18 months into this kind of slowdown. It's finally hitting the seed stage stuff. So like there was a you know couple guys just getting started that doing uh, technology business locally, and uh, you know two years ago that deal would have easily been like a three to five million dollar deal. They took, they gave us ten percent of their company for one hundred and fifty grand, which like that hasn't happened in like eight eight years. Yeah, maybe? it's like, been a long time. But the correct the correction is finally hitting kind of the, the early stage space. So I think prices are going to get more reasonable back to maybe what they should be now that you know, zero interest rates are over and will probably be over for a while. Dude, I cannot like how this is all going to shake out with the private equity market. Mm-hmm. Cause it's just sitting over there. All the same rules are applying mm-hmm. to them, right. As commercial real estate, as, mm-hmm. as the banks, and they just have this huge curtain over them because they don't have to publicly release anything. And yeah. <laughs> sitting you're going, I don't know, man. I don't. I'm, I'm going to be very intrigued to see how the IRR is going to be delivered to their investors when the time comes. Yeah, I, I think the, you know, the the longer that rates stay higher, like is, you know, more and more is, like even if the rates stay what they are now, like the longer that you know the rates stay at this number, uh, we're right now at four and a half percent or whatever, like more people are going to be caught with their pants down because you know usually on like business debt, you know, it's max like seven years of like people will fuck the rate for so. That stuff kind of turns over and you got to, you know, refinance it, you know, a deal like a real estate deal that made sense at three and a half percent is not going to make sense when you got to pay 7% on your money. And then people I was watching, uh, I was watching, uh, there was a, a guy I follow, um, and, uh, 
he he published um his uh, like a note from his REIT that he is invested in and they were talking about the underwriting mat and it was like if it doesn't it like doesn't make any sense underneath seven and a half percent like at all mathematically excuse me yeah very fascinating do you think like i'm curious from from someone that's i, I have no idea what your cash position is on anything obviously but i'm curious of like what is your intentions as you're starting to see things pop up over the yeah. next couple of years? <laughs> you're going to be drooling or what? Well, right now, I think I'm probably like 25% in cash. I just uh, haven't, you know, real estate stuff slowed down. The VC stuff is kind of slowing down. You know, I have dollar cost averaging the stock market. Keep doing that. Um, but, I, you know, I haven't really found anything that just screens deal. Um, so if money's sitting in, Money market count making it's four point five five percent, and it's gonna gonna do that until the right opportunity comes and your market beats still. Well, you think so. about that. You, you get twenty five percent cash and it's four point five percent. Like that's what everybody's competing with. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I was talking to a, buy, a buddy that's in commercial real estate, and he was telling me that. Uh, so he they sold a building for thirty five million bucks at a three point eight cap rate wow. <laughs> two years ago. I'm just like, for God's sakes. Oh, it's uh, ultimately, I think it's going to be good though, because stuff got financed that never made sense business, I mean, private equity and real estate. So, uh, to have, the fact that there's like a normal interest rate now is, is going to force people to invest in, you know, be more, I don't know, smarter about their investing and ultimately that'll mm-hmm. be good for the economy long term. Matt, I'll tell you what, man, like it just, I appreciate the conversation. You're just so level headed and it's, uh, it's, it's just fun. It's fun mm-hmm. to talk to people that like it just that you 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 have the priorities in a way that is um it's aspirational, man. Yeah. I appreciate it very much. And um when you when you think about the listeners, I mean well, I only got a couple questions I usually wrap up with. And the first one is I love the word intentional mm-hmm. for all the right reasons. Uh the name of the show. I'm curious on your definition of what that means to you, that word. Yeah, for me intentionality is like thinking like what are the directions that you want to go in life? Like you want to be in a direction of being a good father, I want to go in a direction of being a venture capital venture capitalist, I wanna go in a direction of helping out my church. Um and like you know, the the goals and day-to-day tasks are less important than like the big life filters and directions you want to go to. And you know, I try to run everything through those kind of filters and uh that meets the filter, like, you know, it's a yes and if it's not, you know, it's a no. And that's been a really good way for me to order my life. That's fantastic, man. It, curious and the um, clarifying question is how do you how do you course correct, and how do you how do you figure off how do you figure out that if you're off track and how do you course correct? Um, yeah, I think it's really for me. It's not hard because if I'm not enjoying something, then it's probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, <laughs> and like it. the directions I have in life, like I love being a father. I love my business. I love volunteering and like, if it's not fun, then it's probably not in alignment with those things. I love it, man. Uh, and then the last question is an easy one for you <laughs> is uh, what's the best place to keep in touch or to reach out. And uh, the listener should also note the, the 20 DMS that we've already discussed, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what's the best place to find you, Matt? Yeah. Uh, check me out. Matt Paulson.com. M A T T P A U L S O N.com. I post a quarterly update as to like, what I'm working on. If you want to want to follow it, uh, you can sign up. For, there's an email list there if you want to get them emailed to you as well. So check that out, Matt. Uh, much appreciation on behalf of myself and the listeners for your time, man. I uh, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, great chat with you, Ryan. Wow, what a conversation with Matt. I was so appreciative of his humbleness, his humility, and his 
discipline to staying focused on the things that matter to him. I truly believe that Matt has embodied intentional growth. He has a clearly identified outcome of the different things that he wants in the wealth creation, the making the impact and the having fun. He's living in this intersection of all those. He's creating value on various aspects of his life to have a platform to live in that intersection as long as he possibly can. And you can tell that he's not moving the goalposts on himself. He's not creating more stress to get the endorphins of a lot of the chaos that a lot of us entrepreneurs have. He's truly designed the best life that he can and he's used the business as a platform to do so and he's constantly tweaking it to stay in the middle of the intersection of the three components of intentional growth. I absolutely love it and I think that we can all learn a lot from just listening to his sense of peace and uh, his ability to reassess his current situation to make sure he's staying on track. I would also uh, suggest everybody tune in to the mini series that we're launching next week where it's about how do we align ownership. So the ownership being the people that care about the equity growth and the dividends income along the way through distributions and how the ownership regardless of and the various types of ownership like ESOPs, family businesses, private equity, the the different types of ownerships and partnerships their goals will impact the time, money, and capital available for the operations and the executive team that are running the operations to then hit the target equity valuation. So we're going to be kicking it off with myself and Dan Grimstrud, an M&A attorney, talking about how partnerships get aligned through the partnership operating agreement and how to think through our long-term goals. Then I'm going to be bringing on someone that manages a family office. His name is Brandon Henry, talking about what is it like in the ownership boardroom of very large billionaires and bigger family businesses where they have a board and they're talking about ownership goals. And then I'm going to have another individual on from the leadership perspective saying, hey, once ownership knows their goals, how do then the executive team execute given the right goals and resources to align with ownership? And then we're going to have a success story on and talk about ways to get aligned. So I'm very excited because I think the separation of ownership and leadership and then getting ownership and leadership on the same page inside of a long-term goal that's clear and identified is one of the biggest challenges that we all have, but also the biggest opportunities because once that clarity is there, everybody can relentlessly execute and go achieve their goals. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.